0: it's that time your fix is here college football is a year-round discussion with these two here's jc and morgan mike morgan of espn and jc sherbert of 24 7 sports have you covered beginning right now Welcome, everybody. It is JC
1: and Morgan, episode number 168, if you're scoring at home. He's JC Sherbert of 24-7 Sports, Mike Morgan, ESPN, SEC Network. Lots of stuff to talk about. Another uh, jam-packed July installment of the podcast, something years ago we'd never say this time of year. We'd be crawling on our hands and knees to just say, one week until SEC Media Days, and we actually have something to talk about. Uh, That, of course, is not the case anymore. Uh, we'll get to the latest on realignment. I'm actually going to break down why all the rumors of these ACC schools bolting for the SEC—it's not going to happen. It's financially prohibitive. Um, we'll get to that later. But you know, we we talked JC before that that earthquake happened about this time of year. We normally get into some team previews. We kind of got into one with Tennessee and one with Florida, and we would. Waiting to get one uh, with Georgia for a while. That, and of course, we conflicted with uh, our next guest's uh, nap schedule, and that—that's never a good thing. You know him as a former Georgia quarterback. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you knew I was going to give you some crap on hey, it. Right? Hey, uh, yeah, hey,
2: you, you've been—you've been sitting on that one for about two weeks. Have I have? I have. <laughs> yeah. I, yes,
1: I, I have. Because we we hyped you up like a few weeks ago. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, he's not here. And so I'm like, what?
0: What?
2: Uh, Anyway, Hudson. Yeah. Rightfully so. Rightfully so.
1: Yeah. I deserve it. I know you could take a good natured uh, ribbing now. And for those that don't know, Hudson and I did uh, some SEC games together for a couple of years before he uh, branched out to other leagues and became a radio star, uh, the 14-person uh, uh, morning show on 680 The Fan here in Atlanta <laughs> called The Locker Room. Or you, you're on there with Joe Hamilton, the South Carolina. Yeah. Product who went to Georgia Tech and went on to a great career. And you got uh, three other fine folks there. But, uh, uh, Hudson, I've always appreciated your work. And uh, thank you for taking out some time today. How, how's life going for you right now as we embark upon media days?
2: And before you know it, the, uh, the season will be here. I just woke up from my nap. And, yes, of uh, course. This time set an alarm like a uh a mature civilian. There you go. Good man. And uh so I'm ready to roll, man. We hmm. got we got S T C Media Days, uh, which we all know in this part of the country is the unofficial kickoff to to college football season. So it's fun. It, it kind of signals football season being right around the corner, man. So uh I'm starting to get that itch. I know you guys are as well.
1: I never asked you this. Were you a Sopranos guy? No. No. And I know, JC, you probably weren't a big Sopranos guy. You're not a big TV guy in general. I should have been, but I was not. OK, so the fact that Tony Sirico, Pauly Walnuts, died at 79 a few days ago, I I, I I could get three hours of mileage on that, but uh, but I'll spare you guys. Uh, anyway, uh, rest in peace, Polly Walnuts. Not for nothing, Tom. Um, let, let's get into a few things here. Before we just dive right into to Georgia, because everybody knows you as the Georgia guy, uh, HUD. But but obviously you 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 cover college football all around. The, the stuff that's happened the last couple of weeks, and and the the absolute uh, hurricane that is Southern Cal and UCLA going to Big Ten, which started a bevy of rumors that do uh, involve the SEC, the ACC, the two leagues that all three of us cover the most and talk about the most on various platforms. Where where do you stand on everything that's happened and and what's going to happen from, from this point forward?
2: Yeah. You know, I'll be honest with you. I'm not super passionate about it. Um, And, and if I'm being candid, it's probably because no matter how much mental energy I put into it, I don't quite understand where college football was going. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's it's like cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. Like I I get the general gist of it, but Hmm. I don't, (laughs) I can't, I I don't have a passion to really, um, there's a lot of other topics as it relates to college football that I'd rather dive into. I mean, you know, uh, college football expansion is probably fifth or sixth on the list. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, 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 don't, I think it's good generally, you know, I think it's good for the fans and the players because, I think overall, like the sec just announced, like we're good. We're not going to add anybody else to the conference. We're going to stay at 16 teams. Um, if that's nine conference games, whatever it is, when Oklahoma and Texas get to the conference, there's going to be the quality of games is only going to increase, you know? And so that's where I see it benefiting, not only the season ticket holders, the consumers, uh, but also the players. You know, I look at Georgia, for example, their home schedule this year, um, they got two quality home games. I mean, if you're a season ticket holder, you're only getting two Auburn and Tennessee. That's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and if you're a recruit, right, you're a five-star recruit, you get only two opportunities to come visit Athens. You know, if you're a big-time recruit, you're not going to come see Georgia play Vanderbilt at home or, you know, some other cupcake team. Uh, You know, you want to come see... Saturday prime time—the chance for you know you to really sink your teeth into Sanford Stadium, eighty, ninety thousand—and and those two opponents give you the best uh, offer, the best chance at seeing that and experiencing that. So I find that one of the biggest disservices in college football in the scheduling format right now at the SEC, and hopefully with expansion, just the quality of games just um, just improves for everybody. Yeah, yeah, and
0: Hudson, don't you think it's gotten stale a little bit because? Uh, we're going on about 30 years now since the SEC broke up into two divisions and went to a, an eight-game format. And then now, you know, you, you only have one rotating opponent. Georgia still has not played at A&M. Uh, they've been in the league almost 10 years now. Um, don't don't you think it's, it, it, it's kind of good that this is kind of facilitating a shakeup? I mean, they're, they're talking about going if they stay at eight to a one-seven format where – Basically, if you're Georgia, you play Florida every year, uh, and then you rotate seven and seven uh, every other season yeah. or a three-six or something like that. Um, and I think, uh, particularly with Georgia right now, with their dominance in the SEC East and the fact that they do their biggest rivalry uh, is played on a neutral site every year, uh, I think it is a disservice. I thought it was a disservice to the fans last year. I, I thought that the good Lord was – um you know, interacting a little uh karma, uh, because in 2017, Georgia fans got to go to Notre Dame Stadium, they got to go to the yeah. Rose Bowl, and then they got to go see a national championship game against their neighbor uh in Mercedes-Benz in Atlanta and play the title game basically at home. So now that was awesome. Uh but but I I thought I, I felt bad for Georgia fans last year because they're just, you know, yeah, okay, everybody got up for Arkansas, great, you know, and, and it, it just kinda wasn't uh you know, there just wasn't that big home game, uh, in my opinion. That, um, And then you look at it this year, and it's the same way. Yeah, I agree
2: with you. I mean, from a player perspective, I never in five years at Georgia, I never went to LSU. I never went to Bryant-Denny Stadium. I never got to play at Kyle Field. Um, you know, to your point, you're, you're generally – you're playing the same crossover team every year, and I believe in preserving tradition. You know, I, I want Georgia to continue to play Auburn – I want Georgia to continue to play Tennessee and Florida. I think those are the three most important games, in my opinion, uh, when we're talking about tradition and rivalries and preserving those. Uh, But I do think just expansion and adding to the conference will help do away with some of the mundane uh, routine of – and, I mean, another example, you know, you look at Georgia's – right, Vegas has Georgia – a double-digit, a heavy double-digit favorite in every game they play this year, including Oregon. But if we're just talking SEC schedule, I mean, the West, to me, one of the, the intriguing aspects of the SEC West this year is like, yeah, Alabama, Texas, a and but the teams in the middle, the Ole Misses, the Arkansas. Like it's very, everybody talks about how it's top heavy. I think the thing that SEC West is most intriguing about this year is it's. I think it's a lot more balanced than it's been in years past. I think LSU, I think LSU Arkansas, Ole Miss. Like, like the East doesn't have that. It's it's ten, it's Georgia at the very top, and at the and the second best team. There's a pretty wide gap, whether it be Tennessee or Kentucky, and then there's a substantial drop off. That's bad. That, that that's just you know a double digit favorite going in week in and week out for Georgia. Speaks to the lack of quality of competition from some other programs in the SEC East. And it just wasn't that way when I grew up in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when, you know, Tennessee, Florida and Georgia were duking it out every single year to get to Atlanta. So long winded, long story short, I I think that expansion and getting Oklahoma and Texas, it, it benefits everybody. Uh, you mentioned
1: it wasn't that way when you grew up in the 2000s. JC and I are a little older than you. And in, in the 90s, it really wasn't that way. I mean, the East was clearly the better division. Uh, it wasn't even close. It was just a matter of who's it going to be, Florida or Tennessee winning it. Uh, and then in the West, who was going to go to Atlanta and get and get slaughtered more often than not? Now, Alabama obviously had some runs under Stallings before eventually getting... Uh, uh, getting it really cranked up under Saban. But you, you look at where the West, where LSU was, uh, you take away the probation years for Auburn, where they were, Ole Miss wasn't much of a factor. I mean, it was just a different division. And since then, this this shift, it's amazing. What is it, 15 out of 16 SEC championship games? The West has won something in yeah. that ballpark. Um, so, yeah, we. I, I think everybody looks forward to the day whether it's eight or nine games, and I still maintain it's it's not going to go to nine until we have confirmation of the expanded playoff. Uh, but the, every, everybody's going to be glad to just see the current system gone. <laughs> like I, I don't know anybody who's a, a great fan of the current schedule model, the way it stands. One thing that got me thinking, Hudson, from a Georgia perspective, I always maintain like everybody wants that stronger schedule. And you mentioned especially season ticket holders. You know, you want that ticket that says a marquee top 25 opponent coming to town. You're all gung ho about that until you lose the game. And then it's like, well, hell, we could have we could have enhanced our overall chances of making a playoff or making this or that Uh, could be a bowl game. In some programs, cases, if we just scheduled lighter. Same thing for George. It's like, okay, we just alluded to some of the things that have been stale. Right. College football as a whole, you could make the argument has been stale. The SEC has been predictable. Uh, but Oklahoma and Texas, like on the surface, this is so cool. We're SEC guys. We're getting two marquee brands, the rich get richer. But if you're like a Georgia and and you're just sitting there and you're dominating and you're, you're, you're in the hunt every year, are you really that excited about adding two programs that could perhaps, you know, be a fly in the ointment and, and cause Georgia a little less success? maybe a little less success in recruiting, a little more uh, losses than wins on a five-year span. Does any of that enter your average Georgia fan's mind at this point? Or do Georgia fans feel so invincible right now, it's like, we'll take on everybody?
2: That's a good thought. I mean, you know, as a fan, I don't know. I've never been a season ticket holder, uh, so it's hard for me to speak about what it's like when you've got a financial investment. But I, I would imagine, you know, when you're, you know, when, when you're paying for something like that, that isn't necessarily cheap, you know, you want a good return on your investment and in turn, you know, and for me, it's like when you're driving, let's say you live in Atlanta, you're driving an hour and a half, two hours on a Saturday, you know, do you want to go see Georgia play Vanderbilt? Do You want to go see Georgia play Texas? Do you want to go see Georgia play FCS fill in the blank. Do you want to see Georgia play Oklahoma, you know, I, so there's that perspective. And then there's the coaching perspective of, okay, what do you have to do to give yourselves a a chance to to get into the college football playoff at the end of the year? And I think we've seen since its inception that, you know, strength of schedule matters. So um, there's pros and cons to it, and I think there's unintended consequences that will definitely come with it. But overall, I just think it's better for the sport. I think J.C. used the perfect word to describe it. It does feel like it's gotten stale. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I I think a lot of people would concur with that. Well, one thing that wasn't stale was last year for Georgia, right? Uh, A memorable season, finally get over the hump, 41 years. So now you go ahead, you lose a ton of people off a generational defense, but you're still loaded because Kirby's recruiting has been insanely good now for a while and just come to expect it to look like Alabama, where you lose a bunch of guys to the NFL. No worries. We're still going to be playing for another national championship. Where do you see just kind of sizing it up on the macro before we dive into specific positional groups and what have you. Where where do you see Georgia for 2022?
2: Well, I think their toughest game on the schedule, if we're talking about regular season, is straight out the gate against Oregon. And and outside of that, it would take a monumental upset. Um, I don't have Georgia losing another game. You know, in, in other words, I think Georgia's season again in 2022 begins the first weekend in December in Atlanta probably playing Alabama again or or maybe Texas A&M or or whatever, but that's the past couple years. I know Florida won the East a couple years ago, but generally speaking, outside of that anomaly of a year, I mean, Georgia has pretty handedly run through the SEC East and, and without a lot of hiccups and hurdles and resistance, got into Atlanta and it's just a matter of when they get to Atlanta, do they have one loss or two loss and are they playing for their college football playoff lives or do they have a little bit of, of margin and wiggle room to even lose that game and still get in? So I personally think uh, Oregon is going to be their toughest competition. I don't believe that uh, the spread there is like 17, 18. I haven't checked it in a week or two, but it is large. And, and I don't think that, that, I think that spread's way too large. I think it's disrespectful to Oregon. It's extremely large of a spread uh, to open up week one of college football season. And on top of it, you throw in the Danning effect coming from Georgia. Uh, I think there's value to that understanding not only the roster of Georgia, but also, you know, tendencies and the scheme and from an offensive and defensive standpoint, I think it works both ways. I think that's an advantage. You know, Kirby could use that to his advantage as well. Um, So I just think, I think Georgia wins. I'm not saying that I'm picking an upset. I just don't, will cover a 17, 18 point spread. Um, And then outside of that, I know a lot of people, including myself are looking at Tennessee as as probably the second best team in the East and maybe the team that could, if there was an upset that you were going to pick, you know, it, maybe that would be that one. I wouldn't go to that stretch. I think Tennessee will be an interesting team in uh, in year two. I think they got to get much better defensively, especially stopping the run. But their offense can cover up for a lot of mistakes defensively. Um, and so, you know, Georgia obviously lost a ton of talent on the defense. I think they'll take a step back. But the question is, is how far of a step back? Because last year they gave up 10 points per game, I think was the number and which is just stupid good. Um And let's say they drop to 17 points per game. It's still, historically speaking, stupid good again. Mm-hmm. But technically, they're regressing. Uh I don't think it'll be a huge step back. Like, I don't think they're going to go from, you know, all of a sudden the number one defense in the, in the SEC to eighth in the SEC. There may be a little bit of a regression, uh, especially up front. But I don't think it's all of a sudden going to be a, Oh my gosh! We're going to be sitting here in the in the middle of the season talking about did, did Kirby Smart forget how to coach defensive? You know, I, but I also, I also, Mike and JC, I don't believe that it's going to be as easy as. Oh, we've got other guys waiting in the wings to to fill those shoes. I've heard that phrase thrown around all this offseason, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Here, let's oh. Uh, those players were really, really good. There's a reason all those guys got drafted on the defensive side of the ball. And yes, Kirby has recruited at a ridiculous level. Ridiculous level, but I'm until I see it, I'm not just going to say that just because there's a couple more five stars waiting in the in the wings that that defense is going to be just as good as what they were last year.
1: Yeah, Jordan Davis was kind of the face of that defense. Um, and of course, Jalen Carter might be the number one pick in the draft if if you believe some people on the line. Yeah. But, but to me, I don't care where he was drafted. I don't care if he was too small. I don't care if, if the NFL scouts were concerned about him. N'Kobe Dean is the kind of player you don't just plug and play. Uh, the, if you watch tape on that kid, uh, there might be more impressive physical specimens in that Georgia locker room. But I didn't see a better football player. So that, that's the kind of guy when I look at it and I say – okay, can, can Georgia be just another completely dominating defense? Well, they, they can, but I certainly wouldn't expect them to just replace guys like that, you know, plug and play, like there's no drop-off whatsoever.
2: Yeah, and there's the physical attributes that you're talking about that, that are hard to replace with great players like that, but then there's also the mental attributes mm-hmm. that I don't think enough people from the outside truly can understand how valuable got when you got upper classmen. You know, like in Kobe Dean, who the Mike linebacker is like the quarterback of the defense. I mean, he handles all the signals. He's relaying all the calls. And, you know, I, I have a buddy who I actually played high school football with here in Atlanta. He, he coaches at uh, Georgia Southern. And I was at a wedding a couple of weeks ago and I saw him and, and he had ha- he happened to go up to uh, Georgia spring practice and he got to watch. He uh, he used to coach with Todd Munkin at, at Southern Miss. And so he went up there and watched and I was talking to him at this wedding. He's like, dude, I sat in and I watched tape of their defense from last year. And he goes, the most insanely ridiculous compliment that I can give that defense is how much Kirby Smart and Dan Lanning put on them schematically. And from a game plan standpoint, he's like, I've never seen, I, I've never seen NFL defenses that could handle as much checks. I mean, they had a check for everything. If the tight end bumped out from the attached position to detach, they audible, you know, they would switch their front at the last second. They had a check for everything. So there were always, it was like chess. It was like checkmate, you know, you did something offensively and the defense was like, Oh, we can check to that. You can't do that with every single defense. Uh, It takes a certain combination of, of veteran players, athletic players, smart players to be able to put that on your defense. And that those are some of the things you know, that you can't necessarily quantify like athletics, how fast you run, you know, how high you jump that are extremely valuable that I don't think really got talked enough about, about that defense last year, that I kind of just sit and wonder I go, okay, you know, what will you be able to put on these 11 guys defensively's plate this year? Talking with Hudson Mason,
1: the, the Georgia game I had last year, we, we, you know, chatted like we normally do with coaches and, and, um, talked with Kirby and and I asked him about the recruiting of Brock Bowers and Brock was, I mean, I don't know how many stars were next to his name, but he was not, he didn't have the hype that perhaps was justifiable to, you know, in terms of how he played already as a freshman. He said, we just, we saw him when nobody else was seeing certain things. And we were like, Oh my goodness, we have got an absolute find here. I, I don't think it's a stretch to say he's, is going to go down as one of the best college tight ends of our generation. I mean, when you look at his skill set and he's got two more years in college, it's scary to think what this kid can do. What stands out to
2: you when you watch Brock Bowers? I just see a kid who really reflects and mirrors a lot of what the NFL game is getting out of the tight ends. The, The old, you know, tight end that, hey, we want you to be, 6'5", 260, hand in the dirt. We want you to block. And if you can catch, then great. Um, That's kind of gone by the wayside. It's gone by the wayside in the NFL. And I think it's starting to go by the wayside in college. And you're seeing this with what Georgia's doing. It's not just with Brock Bowers, Eric Gilbert, who didn't play last year, but we know what he did his freshman year at LSU, is a a physical specimen. Uh, Darnell Washington at 6'8", can absolutely run. I've said he's like a big mattress running across the field. He's so big and athletic. I just when you look at uh, when you watch games on Sundays and you and you study the tight end position, I mean these guys that are truly uh, perfecting their their top of their position, uh, the Gronks of the world, um, you know Kettles, those guys. They're big. They can run. um, They're versatile. They are, they can run the entire route tree. Uh, they're not stiff and they may not be great blockers, but they're great athletes. And And I think that's the way the game is going. And so when I look at Brock Bowers, it's like a combination hybrid of like, man, if you told me this kid was like a slot receiver in high school, I would buy it. I really would. Uh, and I think some of the tape and stuff that he put on tape last year reflects that. And I think that's why he's going to be so attractive at the next level was man, yeah, you can use him like a traditional tight end, but he's a true mismatch for any offensive coordinator to use to their disposal. It's like, you know, if you get him with a safety one-on-one, he's too big, but if you put a linebacker on him, he's too fast. Like, that's the, that's the best compliment I can give him. How do you defend him? Okay, I'm going to put a safety on him. Well, your safety better be six one, and he better be able to run. He better, he better be able to move. Uh, and if you put a linebacker on him, man, I just, I don't know if maybe few linebackers in the country that can truly guard him. Cause he's so he can move so well. So I, I just think it, when I watch Sunday tight ends and I watch him, man, it just, they mirror each other so much.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> when I watch some of the elite tight ends in the NFL, uh, you know, and you, you start looking at guys, like a, a Travis Kelsey obviously stands out Kittle of, of San Francisco. Of course, Kittle can actually block and does block in their offense, but Bowers just seems to have an extra gear over those guys. Maybe it'll look different when he's in the pros, but he just looks faster. He, he just looks like a different kind of beast than even what some of the elite tight ends at the next level look like. And he's got two more years to groom yeah. him. It's, it's, i have just, I'm, there's very few things that kind of blow me over anymore. Cause we've seen some just fantastic athletes at every position at big time college football Bowers is that that's a different dude, man. I mean, that's, that's yeah. an alien, right? And, there. It, and
0: it,
2: It's when you think about that tight end position group for Georgia, I would put them up there with the best, if not the best overall position group out of any team, out of any position in college football this year, I put them up there with Clemson's D line, Um, I'd put them up there with Ohio state's wide receivers. Um, I mean, those three right there, I think are in a stratosphere of their own when it comes to position groups. If you rank position groups in college football, those three are the class of the class. They're the creme de la creme. And so I can't wait to see what Georgia does offensively this year, uh, with tight ends, because we've seen 12 personnel before. That's not that rare. That's very common in college football, one running back and two tight ends. But I think there'll be times this year where we see 13 personnel, which is one running back and three tight ends. And typically you only see that in like goal line short yardage. But I think because of the versatility of those three guys, Harry Gilbert, Brock Bowers, Darnell Washington, I just, I think, (laughs) I think Tom Munkin is going to have some stuff up his sleeve that he's just like, you know, rolls out week two, week three. Could be week one against Oregon. He's just like, all right, here, how do you defend this? It'll be fun to watch.
0: Yeah, I'll see something interesting about this group, too, if you look at it uh, geographically. Uh, Who would have thought this? Uh, Georgia's got, you know, three excellent tight ends, um, including Gilbert. And you mentioned Washington. Washington's from Las Vegas, Nevada. And Bowers is from Napa, California. Yeah. Wine country, man. So who, who would have thought? Sin City and Wine Country, you know, two of the best uh, uh, in the group of tight ends uh, nationally in America. That just – that shows you that Kirby smart probably uh, when people talk about elevating the recruiting at Georgia. I I, I think – and I always think you got to recruit the state and the states that touch it, no no doubt about it. But uh, you go pick guys off from here, there, and yonder, maybe from places that you don't think about, and all of a sudden – uh, you're dealing with upgrades, and, and a guy like Bowers, who's who's special. So I uh, uh, just a little kind of recruiting uh, storyline there about those guys. I I think it's fascinating to kind of look at not uh, you not only who they are, but where they're from, you know, and how they got to Athens.
1: What, yeah. what about that? What what about the recruiting? And JC covered it nationally for years, um, and and everybody knows that Kirby's just been cleaning house. The only person that's really been in his category has been Nick. Um, I, I promise we won't get into NIL because I don't want to go. I think we're all just burnt out with NIL talk. But I, I do have to ask, does NIL affect Georgia in any positive or negative way? When I think of Georgia, you've got Atlanta, which is a top 10 market. So You've got a lot of businesses you can tap into in addition to just local uh, money and every school has got a couple of whale boosters, right? We all know about those guys. We all know about, uh, happy from blue chips. Um, do you, do you think it, it does anything at all, or does Georgia just stay right where it is, which is top five in recruiting every year?
2: Yeah, I think Georgia is going to be where they are under Kirby smart. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that, really, Mike. I mean, name, image, and likeness. I I don't see it hurting Georgia by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, if if Kirby can find something that he can use to his advantage, he's going to – I mean, he is going to turn over every rock and every stone. It's just in his DNA to use it to his advantage. I I don't know so much. You hear these crazy stories about these collectives and players, and there's a coach in the SEC that I have a great relationship with. He coaches on one of the SEC West teams. He told me he's like – you know, the big time players, the five stars are literally coming to us and they're going, Hey, I'm getting this from, you know, fill in the blank school. What's your offer? You know, Mm -hmm. and and I'm paraphrasing, but that's, they're essentially using that as leverage to get more money, uh, out of other schools. He's like, that's not happening with everybody, but you better believe the five star, the top 50, top 100 players, they're doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we have to have an answer to it. Like we can't just go, Oh, well, we don't do that here. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think everybody is still trying to figure out on the fly what this is going to look like long-term. Um, I think everybody wants there to be guardrails for it, even the coaches. Uh, unfortunately, I just I don't think we're going to get that type of um, any of that from the NCAA. So uh, the good thing for Kirby is that, you know, in Alabama and Clemson, Ohio State, those schools um, – You know, it's like, what do you tell an 18-year-old kid? Yeah, NIL is important. Or, hey, you know, look here. You spend four years in our program. Here's the average player who goes on to make probably two times, three times, four times more than that off of an NFL contract. You know, like what's more what's more important to you? The potential of making $1 million on a name, image, and likeness deal? Or I can show you a 100 players over the past five years that have gotten drafted from our system and our program, and here's the amount of money they've made which is 20 can be 20 million like that to me is far more valuable and would speak far more to me personally than just the potential of getting a chicken. And I'm not diminishing that by any means. It just, I can't, I don't, I can't relate to making a decision as big as that one that will affect you the rest of your life with where you get your degree, where you go to school, where you play football, the relationships that you build and making that based off of, name just name image and likeness alone
1: mm-hmm. talking with uh Hudson Mason former Georgia quarterback SEC network and 680 the fan Hudson one of the things I always enjoyed when we worked together on games was obviously you had physical skills as a player but you're also a very cerebral guy you think the game you uh, kind of follow trends on on the uh on the big picture of where we are in college football when you look at the game today I mean, you already talked about how the the evolution of the tight end now in football. What do you like and what's turning you off about the way the game of college football is being played
2: right now on the field? Yeah, um, number one, the thing I hate is just how um, the innate aspect, the innate nature of the contact sport is trying to be taken away. And I'm all for player safety, but I'm not for trying to make football something that it's not um i'm not for trying to take away um, and paralyze players and and hurt players um and making players become much more um much slower in the game in terms of okay i have to think about do I go for this ball? Do I hit this player this way? Right. I mean, I, and specifically what I'm talking about is I'm talking about, about you know, the ejection rule, the targeting rule of college football. Um, I've been screaming from the mountain couple of ball one and a flagrant two. I just, I'm tired of seeing players who are just making football plays get thrown out of a game uh, and seeing a team and a player get penalized, um, not a, the next week for that. I, you know, I, I would like to see much like college basketball where there is a, you know, a, a tier one, a tier two, let's call it mm-hmm. tier two, the egregious hits that, you know, where you're trying to de- amputate a guy coming over the middle. Uh, you know, yeah, let's, let's eject him for the next half or the first half. Um, just hate that we lump all of those. I remember the old Penn state game ladder at the goal line. I think it was Auburn defensively a player linebacker safety. It might've been that was just making a routine tackle on, you know, because he struck helmet to helmet. Well, the ball carrier also lowered his center of gravity, you know, and it's like, we just don't penalize offensive players for, for those type of things like we do defensively. So, um, I don't like where that's going. Um, but, uh, you know, I love where college football is going from an offensive-driven standpoint. I think it's exciting. I think, you know, you look at where I was at Georgia in 2014, we averaged, uh, I think it was low 40s, 42, 43, let's call it 40 points per game, which at that time in 2014 was a school record. And it was top the SEC. And now, man, if you're averaging 40 points per game, you're not up you're not schlucking it around by any means, but you're behind a little bit. You know, you're, you're definitely not, you know, you look at the numbers last year that, you know, you're top 10 in the country. You're averaging, you know, mid forties, high forties points per game. So it's, it's become an air raid pass first 11 personnel, get as many receivers RPO. I think that's fun for our job. Uh, I Hmm. think it's fun to commentate and opinionate about that stuff. It creates more big plays. Um, you know, it's, it's harder than it's ever been to play defensive football for some of the reasons I just mentioned. But also, um, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot more defensive coordinators the past couple of years go from big, bulky defensive linemen. And they have re- they've changed a little bit how they have recruited, especially on the defensive line. They want smaller guys. Maybe maybe that defensive lineman isn't 290. He's 275, but he can run a little bit better. And they're going to a three down lineman and three linebackers. And, and it's just, it's cool to see defensively how defensive coordinators have really tried to uh, uh, innovate and become innovative over the past couple of years and really stop um, a lot of these RPOs and some of the rules that benefit just offensive football. So, um, you know, for, for those reasons, I think college football is only going to continue to be more exciting and, and, I don't see the points thing in the in and the yards and, and all that stuff really slowing down anytime in the future.
1: Yeah, I, I don't either. And to your point on the defensive lineman, I think you could you could go back a level. Uh, smaller linebackers in a lot of cases to to cover more ground. I, I just talked about N'Kobe Dean. I mean, he was one of the smaller dominating linebackers in, in the sport. But there was nobody better last year in college football at doing what he did from that a particular position um, wrapping things up with Hudson Mason, who by the way, nobody does analysis of a bench clearing brawl during an sec football <laughs> game better than uh, Hudson. It was less than two years ago. We had Florida, Missouri and a brawl breaks out <laughs> right before halftime. Uh, there's kicking, there's punches thrown, there's ejections. And then Dan Mullins in a Darth Vader suit. And uh, you know, a year later he
2: gets a pink slip and is now out of coaching. It's crazy how things can change, huh? Man, you're not lying. I mean, I, I look back on that, and not only were the, the, the stuff was the stuff on the field just crazy, but I, I kind of look back on that in hindsight and I go, man, that was that the moment things started to kind of unravel for Dan Mullen. You know, like if he could go back and do things differently, would he handle that press conference a little differently? Would he handle I think he would absolutely say that he would handle the stuff on the field a little a little differently because, you know, you and I were there. I mean, he was absolutely a part of instigating that. He definitely – he didn't pour water on the, on the coals. If anything, he poured more gasoline on it. Uh, right. But just the, the stuff post-game, it just makes you kind of wonder, like, if he would have handled that stuff better, would he still be the head coach at Florida? Um, and I so think the recruiting
1: is ult- would ultimately do him in still. And, that, and Kirby basically called him out after they won the game the next year and said, I didn't win this game, Our players that we've accumulated over time. And if you read between the lines, what he was basically saying is, Dan, you might be this mastermind play caller, and that would have worked in the 1990s. But in today's day and age of college football, it's about player acquisition. And and if you can't play the game like a Kirby does, like a Saban does, like a Jimbo does, uh, you're not going to have a dominating program. Yeah. And, and and Florida hasn't been that for a while. And they 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 could they they improved under Dan, but they never reached that next level that Georgia has had. And that's I think that's that's the other thing where the where coaching is changing. It's not just about ball anymore. You you got to If you're not a full time recruiter and if that's just too much and if you don't want to now play the NIL game, you're going to be left behind.
2: And I think too, the other takeaway is PR matters. I think a lot of these coaches are, are older and they came up in the, in the, the era of newspapers and Twitter wasn't around, right? And, and, you know, and PR didn't matter. Optics didn't matter as much. Uh, I mean, you look at Jeremy Pruitt, Dan Mullen, Ed Ogeron all got fired for different PR reasons, different PR related reasons. I just think this coach in this era now, you better not run away from. Interviews with the media, Dan Mullen. uh, Another example is when to that point about recruiting. Remember last year when he said, Oh, we'll worry about recruiting after the season's over and you're going, Oh my gosh, (laughs) you just, you just, that was like a career suicide. I mean, from a PR standpoint, it's like, you know, even if, even if that is how you operate, you don't say that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I look at Shane Beamer at South Carolina. I think he hits it out of the park when it comes to social media Lane Kiffin does the same thing. Um, You know, you better embrace it because like it or not, these ADs and these chancellors face a lot of pressure by the way of PR and and how well you handle that or not.
1: Yeah. There's only one coach that can get away with not doing that well, and that's Nick Saban. Everybody else, you better better adapt. You better adapt or you'll be uh, left behind. I, I want to ask you one last thing wrapping up, and if you don't want to talk about this, I don't even know um, if if this is supposed to be – you're not doing it anymore. The, the Dan Fouts role, do you feel comfortable talking about what you did yeah. at CBS? I, I think this is – people at listening to our podcast would find this fascinating because Tony Romo has has changed the landscape of – an analyst, big-time TV analyst, we see the numbers. They have skyrocketed out of control. And Tony did something that nobody else did, which was basically kind of predicting plays before they happened. Yeah. What people don't know, and I didn't know this until you and I first started working together, and you told me, because you we would do our game Saturday, and I'd be getting ready to go home. You'd get on a plane, and you'd go to an NFL game wherever Dan Fouts was. was what do you do with that crew? You were... The, the secret sauce, if you will, just expand to people. Cause Tony Romo has a guy that does this too. People don't know this. What, yeah. what did you do? What does Tony Romo and some other analysts have that we never talk about? We never see them, but they help those guys sound a lot smarter.
2: It's yeah, it's essentially, um, and Tony still has this, this role. And, and now that, you know, Dan no longer works at CBS. Uh, they filled, they filled, uh, my role with, with another person at, It was uh, essentially like a a football spotter, so like an X's and O's spotter. You think of, uh, you know, you you have a spotter in the booth, but this spotter, the role I was doing is a guy with a football background um, who can talk in the ear of the analyst and explain what they're seeing after a play. And so, you know, they obviously, this took off with Tony the first couple of years when he was kind of predicting the play. And the guy who does it for Tony is a kid who played quarterback at, I believe, Harvard. Um, And so football background, and he could speak the lingo and he would basically just be either sitting in the truck, watching the game on a bunch of different screens with a bunch of different angles, or he'd be in the booth and he would have direct communication with the producer and the director and then the analyst. And, you know, you would get together throughout the week uh, and you would, I would talk with Tony or excuse me, um, Dan, and, and we would talk about tendencies, you know, Hey, the Kansas city chiefs love, you know, running the shuffle pass in the red zone, or they love this, this, this play in the red zone. And so there was prep that went into it and, and we would know that going in, Hey, this is what the chiefs love to do on third and three. And so basically I just turned into like an extra set of eyes Hey, uh, after the play, Hey, the safety didn't get off the hash there. That's why there was a bust in the secondary. And sometimes, you know, he would take that. The analyst will take that information and regurgitate it. I, I would say, um, you know, I don't know, 60%, 70% is the analyst truly doing his thing. And then the next 25, 30% is, you know, coming from the guy behind the scenes that, uh, is seeing something different, um, and stuff like that. And it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, unfortunately, I just got to the point where as my, as my weekly, you know, commitments with ESPN kind of took off and I was doing a game every weekend It just the travel aspect of it became too hard, but it was a blast. I mean, you, you're going around. I mean, I got to meet with one-on-one meetings with, it would be me, Ian Eagle, Dan Fouts, the producer and the director, and just sitting in the meetings with Bill Belichick and Brady and Philip Rivers and Drew Brees and Sean, dude, it was, I mean, it was, Football geek one-on-one stuff that you just geek out about and, and listening to them talk and tell stories, travel the country. Um, I absolutely loved it. So a funny crazy story, actually. They called me back last year and they wanted to do something totally on the A crew with Tony Romo. And uh they wanted to start pretty immediately, they wanted to implement something new that. Sunday night football was doing with Chris Collinsworth and they're having a lot of success with it. And, uh, they wanted me to come back and do it. I just said, Hey man, I, I just don't know if I can make all of it work. Uh, and unfortunately they, they wanted somebody that could kind of commit to it, uh, immediately. And I couldn't, but it was a great experience. See, if I was your agent, I would have demanded a figure that would have made that a little bit more tempting to
1: do. And I would have had a, a, a charter flight after every yeah. Saturday ESPN game. You would yeah. have had a charter, right? to, But you didn't hire me as your agent, unfortunately. Yeah. So that, uh, that didn't work out. But no, I think people find that. Fa- I, I don't know. I, I tell people that story. And they're like, what? Tony Romo has an, a, 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 another former player in there telling them stuff in his ear in real time right after the play happened. And Tony can use that. I said, yes, that's how they do it at that. Yeah. We don't do it at our level. We don't we, we, we meet and we talk to coaches and we obviously prepare and try to sound smart. But we don't have that extra set of eyes like that. I think that's a that's a huge yeah. advantage for any analysts out there uh hutt can't uh, thank you enough for this again uh, people can catch you if they're uh, driving in the car in the morning 680 the fan the uh the front row you and a uh, cast of thousands doing that uh, monday through friday and of course uh on a uh, particular espn channel every saturday on college football i've enjoyed working with you and i've enjoyed uh, chatting with you today uh enjoy the rest of the what's limited time off in the summer before we uh, all get cranked up yeah. in football. thanks for having me, man. Looking forward to it. Hopefully we'll get to do a game this fall together. That'd be great. Yeah, we'll reunite, maybe have another brawl and you can uh, break it down and uh, uh, blow by blow. Hudson, thank you. See you, man. today. Tony Pope State Farm has been in business for more than 30 years and can handle anything you need in the tri-state area. Once again, Tony Pope State Farm will help you mix and match perfectly. Call 843-851-2222 or visit TonyPope.com today. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Great stuff from uh, Hudson Mason. Uh, Again, you know, I've said this a million times. I've worked with a lot of analysts in three different sports and Hudson be the first one to tell you he's a self-deprecating, very down-earth guy. Like he wasn't the biggest name quarterback to come out of Georgia, right? He only got to start uh, a year or two. And, you know, they had Aaron Murray set all kinds of records. And, of course, then you Fromm and, and you go back to Zire, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But some of the best analysts, JC, are guys that didn't have the best careers. And that's the same thing when you watch the NFL. When you, uh, I mean, Kirk Street was Kirk Street an All-American? No, but he's an outstanding analyst. Right. So uh, and Hudson thinks the game. And I'll take that any day over the guy that was the most exceptional athlete. Um, So I appreciate his insight on Georgia's. I got to ask you this. I'm sure you were thinking as he was kind of breezing through the SEC slate for Georgia. He did mention Tennessee. Now, look, they do have to go to South Carolina and that typically has been a trouble spot for georgia so i know gamecock fans aren't thinking that's going to be a double digit uh georgia win right that's that that has the potential to be a potential trap game for georgia
0: well here's the interesting thing about that game first of all it's back to its traditional uh, third week of the season second week of the season slot that it normally is it it sort of bounced around. And then during the pandemic, they played at Thanksgiving weekend in Columbia. And, um, you know, since back in the early part of the season, i I think Kirby smart, um, uh, has done a better job with South Carolina than Mark Rick. But I also think that Kirby smart hadn't necessarily faced Lou Holtz and Steve Spurrier, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know if the Gamecocks have been all that good and that's with one exception. Um, the other part of it is it's a noon kickoff. That does not happen in this series very often. Um, the last time it happened uh, was in Athens in 2019 and the Game Cox won. And the time before that that it happened, if I'm not mistaken, was in 2010 in Columbia and the Game Cox won. Um, you know, and, and all that goes out the window. It's players versus players. But I, th- I think South Carolina has better players this year Uh, I think there's some players that came in through the transfer portal people aren't even talking about right now who are really good and it's not just Spencer Rattler but you know until South Carolina competes with them um, and and, and to their credit they did in 2019 and they won the game they pulled an upset but that was that was a different game, and then you go right back the next year and you get blown out, and you got blown out last year. You know, until until they make it to where, like you used to walk away from the Georgia South Carolina game, both sides, whoever won and whoever lost, going, that was a war. That was a the most one of the most the, every year uh, from Holtz up through Spurrier. Uh, it was one of the most physical football games. First SEC game for both teams usually. Uh, in, 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 of the year, and and until South Carolina gets back to that point where, and I don't know, you know, I don't know how, uh, you know, judging from the, the trajectory of Georgia's program, I mean, it's going to be tall task because they're physical. Um, you know, the, the, then that that that's not a game that that's going to register for most Georgia people. Um, you know, it used to be, and I hung out with some some Bulldogs. Um. Over 4th of July in Tennessee and uh, hung out with them seven years ago and uh, they are all worried about that game you know this year that game didn't register so uh, I I think I think a lot of it's up in South Carolina uh, as far as how they compete this year you know to, to get the respect you know that some other programs have I mean South you know Tennessee beat the living tar out of Carolina last year. But Florida beat the living tar out of Tennessee, and Carolina beat the living tar out of Florida. Uh, Tennessee, South Carolina, both are seven and six. Um, I know they run an exciting offense. South Carolina's offense was donkey a lot of the times. But, uh, you know, there's really no difference uh, between Tennessee and South Carolina. It's just that they're going to get the benefit of the doubt right now uh, because they're Tennessee. And you know uh, how you change that is if you're a South Carolina, you go out there and have a great year because I think well, people people want to believe in Shane Beamer, you know.
1: Absolutely. I think Shane Beamer's already become a a, a media favorite uh, in a lot of ways. What's not to like about him if you ever deal with him? We had him on our podcast uh, sure. a year or so ago. He, he was he was terrific, and you and I have known Shane um, personally mm-hmm. uh, well well before that. I think the X factor in all that is, is Spencer Radler. Like, you know what you're getting with Hendon Hooker. You know, you saw it last year. There's no, they've, they've got a, an all-conference receiver. There's no reason to think that that offense is still not going to put up points. Like Hudson Mason, uh, Mason mentioned, don't know what to expect out of their defense. It can only be better. But, uh, but if Rattler plays like the five-star stud that he was meant to be, that's your game-changer. I mean, I agree with you. I don't think there's a huge difference in personnel between Carolina and Tennessee. Uh, We were talking about Georgia's tight ends. I mean, Carolina has got two of the top 10, according to a number of people out there, including our boy, uh, Farrell, who we need to get on uh, the podcast. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I I don't think there's a a huge difference there at all. if, If Rattler plays the way hooker did last year, then again, now, now the narrative changes, now, all of a sudden, uh, everything is is different. Uh, some might say if Anthony Richardson looks the part. Uh, but I, what I saw of Anthony Richardson his one start was a guy that was inaccurate and kept throwing it to the other team. So, I, you know, I, when the case of in the case of Rattler, there's not a time I realize he lost the starting job. But if you look at his numbers at Oklahoma, pretty damn good. Overall, uh, yeah. they're, they're, he got caught in the middle of a whole thing there. That's not going to happen at Carolina. There's, there's no pressure on him. He's not losing that job to anybody in a yeah. guncock uniform. So uh, that, that, that's the X factor. That's one of the biggest X factors in this league this year because there's a lot of proven products at quarterback that you know what you're getting. Spencer Rattler, I don't entirely know, but it, it, the, the the top end potential is is very high yeah. Uh, unlike some other guys in the league
0: yeah it's a different system too I mean South Carolina's system uh, you know you mentioned the two tight ends it, it, it is going to be sort of you know a quote-unquote pro style type of deal because they're going to use uh, 12 and 13 personnel like Hudson talked about they've got some you know Jaheim Bell can play three different positions they, they got some help at wide out with Um, juice Wells from James Madison who caught 80 balls for them. And James Madison's no slouch. Uh, and they have some people on that staff that were at Alabama before that, that gave him a lot of praise, uh, comparing him to some of those Alabama guys. They got a kid named Corey Rucker. Uh, they got from Arkansas state. Um, he he caught 14 passes in one game, you know, And, and that, that, that was missing too last year. You know, the quarterback situation was a mess. Uh, but South Carolina, outside of a improved Josh van, uh, you know, and, and then the tight ends, uh, Bell and Muse, and Bell was – I don't know that he was necessarily used the right way the whole year. They um, they didn't have a lot of people to catch the ball. I mean, that, that receiving core was left in horrendous shape. Well, they got some guys this year. And so, so we'll see. But, man, I mean, look, I, I think Kentucky, South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida – Maybe even Missouri, uh, and I know people aren't real high on Eli Drinkwitz's team this year, but they do have a good recruiting class coming in and freshman receiver Luther Bolden's a stud. Uh, he's the type of guy who usually goes to Ohio State out of East St. Louis, and he went to Missouri. You know, shake him up in a box and see who comes out. I mean, that, that's my opinion on, on who finishes second in, in the SEC East. I think, um, you know, I, I think it's premature until we see Georgia play. To say somehow they're going to come way back to the pack, um, I don't think the, their defense is going to be as good as it was last year. But but like Hudson said, that's where, that's all relative. Um, but the, the, but those teams, you know, above Vandy and below Georgia, I mean, I, you know, like I said, you draw them out of a hat. I mean, I, it could go it could go a number of ways this year. And people are so down on uh, Florida fans are down on Billy Napier right now. You know, what if he beats Utah and Kentucky to open the season two and oh, I mean, that, that, that narrative is going to change pretty quick. So, yeah,
1: I mean, that, the, the the Florida fans that are that are were, were, I should say, they as you've probably noticed in your yeah, calm down, a little they, they, they bounced back with you know, a lot of and I, I'm not uh, keeping up with all this stuff like you do, but apparently they've got a number of four-star kids that have recently committed. So the recruiting rankings, which were not good and now like in the top 20 or whatever. So, but with Billy, it's not that the the hysteria there is not about Billy Napier, the coach Uh, it's about Billy Napier, the recruiting. And I think Florida fans feel so scarred with the Dan Mullen apathy toward recruiting that when they hear a, a Miami beating them on kids uh, because of some NIL money, it's like, uh, oh my goodness, sky is falling. Here we go again. We're not, we're not ready to do what needs to be done. Um, but all it takes is a few good signees
0: to kind of change the, uh, yeah. the, 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 narrative. the narrative. Yeah. And like I said, there's always opportunity. I mean, uh, we had, Uh, Thomas Goldkamp, who apparently, you know, his interview with us was so good, he just decided to hang it up. (laughs) It was a walk-off. And and, and retire the the next day, you know, uh, on and in Florida, sort of a a mystery. I mean, you know, the the one question I have, I I don't have any question about Billy Napier's ability to recruit because I'll tell you this, uh, Jim McElwain and Steve Spurrier, who are two coaches that really could – and Dan Mullen, who could really give a flip about recruiting – uh, they had enough talent to win, you know, their share of games. They they still recruited their share of NFL players. It just wasn't good enough to top a, a, a rejuvenated Georgia and Alabama. Um, Napier's not that guy. He, he's going to go no. recruiting now. He's a, he is a great. He's always been a really good recruiter. And so I don't worry about that with them. I think I think it'll, But now you know the, the one thing I do worry about is his offense, and uh, that's. Uh, that's a to-be-determined scheme fit for the Gators. Uh, is it going to be like, you know, Kurt Roper's uh, under Mustial of Mustial's coordinators and McElwain's offense, which conceptually it's very similar. Uh, or or will Anthony Richardson be like a superstar and will it be you know something Gator fans can live with?
1: Well, that's what they're banking on, that Richardson's going to be a superstar. I was listening to a radio show and a, a beat writer over there was trying to compare him to Cam Newton. There is nothing about that kid that says Cam Newton yet. I mean, uh, he's big and he's athletic. That's where it stops. Like Cam Newton could make every throw. That's why he was the number one pick in the NFL draft. Uh, now Cam was his worst enemy once he got to the NFL and I could do a whole podcast on that, but we won't, uh, with Anthony Richardson, it's, it's, he ain't there. I mean, he might turn out to be this right now. He's got a nice highlight reel, uh, but he he's not there yet as a guy that you can just open up the offense and he can make all the throws and, and nobody cares if you can throw it 70 yards down the field, because unless it's like a hail Mary situation, a college quarterback is not throwing it 70 yards down the field. You know how long the offensive line has to hold up protection for you to make a 70 yard, uh, throw downfield that the receivers are there. It doesn't happen. So when you hear a kid can throw it 70 yards, that really means nothing. Yeah. It really means absolutely nothing. Um, and I don't know if Florida has game breakers at wide receiver. I, I mean, where the, the days of Percy Harvin have passed <laughs> in Gainesville. They have not been, you know, Kadarius Toney was a makeshift running back. They don't have those kind of guys. Tennessee's got at least one. Um, Carolina has had some here and there. And, of course, we already talked about their tight ends. Uh, but, but Georgia's just been built differently. They have just been recruiting. And I, I'll say one thing about the way things have changed, because you mentioned Spurrier and um, it used to be like, okay, well, is, is this guy really willing – is he willing to you know, pound the pavement and grind it out and have his cell phone – have three cell phones handy 24 hours a day. I hate to say this, and I might be sounding overly cynical, but while that's still important, it's kind of like what Hudson was talking about with the assistant coach in the SEC West that he was talking to, which is a five-star wants to know, number one – how much are you paying? That's where we are. That is where we are in college football. And so you can be the greatest recruiter and just a tenacious recruiter. If you don't have the money in the collective uh, for NIL, then all that could fall backseat to the guy who's not as good a recruiter and maybe doesn't pound the pavement as much as you do. Yeah. But he's got he's got Billy Joe Bob over there with an extra – Few hundred grand.
0: Yeah, we see that. I see certain schools that that definitely fit that bill mm-hmm. right now. But it, you know, getting back to this expansion talk, I, I, um, I don't know if we talked about revenue share the other day, TV revenue share uh, on on the last episode or not. But that's my idea of how to fix all this, Mike. Is uh, and and Feldman or somebody tweeted about it when the Big Ten first added Southern Cal and UCLA uh, is that they may start giving guys a cut of the revenue. No, you got and, into that. You, yeah. You, you got, and, yeah. and, and so how I think, and then what you do is, is every, because that is an NIL deal. You make it exclusive and you say, okay, no NIL for you until you, you know, honor this exclusive deal for a year or two. And then like Steve Spurrier said in a recent interview, when he was asked about nil, I was like, well, shoot after that, it's a free country, <laughs> you know? Um, and then you just come down hard uh on on people that that try to cut NIL deals before or offer money inducements or whatever and you just say okay well if you do that you risk getting a cut of this TV money and uh you're ineligible and, and and I think that insulates uh everybody from the the lawsuits of the greedy from the people that want to blow up the sport uh and it takes NIL out of recruiting because what it does now now what it does do is give schools with big, bigger TV deals an advantage, um, just quite frankly. But it doesn't uh, – you don't have these collectives and things like that getting involved in the actual recruiting process, which is wh- where I think the whole thing has gone off the rails. It's pay uh, for
1: play. It's yeah. it's exactly what we've talked about in this podcast for years that was going to happen. Yeah. And there's nothing on the books to stop mm-hmm. it. And you have a feckless NCAA, which is sure. what a lot of people thought they wanted. Um So it it, it is the wild, wild west in
0: every sense of the term. Sure. And that's why I would say, okay, we're going to give you a cut of the TV money, and that's an NIL deal, and it's exclusive. So you do anything else, you forfeit that, and you're ineligible. And I think that shuts everybody up. And It doesn't create an even playing field because the Big 12 isn't going to be able to pay as much as the SEC or Big 10. $50 behind. Yeah, I mean, they're behind, but – I think what it does is it, it does take the, uh, the boosters sort of out of the mix as far as recruiting yeah. goes. Uh, and then the boosters, you know, I, I think the motivation for the collectives then moving forward would be uh, keep everybody on the roster. <laughs> you know, um, so there's still a need for them. I just think – I think the collectives and the agents and people like that, I think agents have a ridiculously skewed mm-hmm. – uh, vision of what this is all about and what these guys are worth. Um, uh, you know, and I think when you have a collective going out recruiting for you, you can have the personality of a potato and, and sign a top five class. Right. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, that that's fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think that if people want a way out to avoid lawsuits, to avoid the whining and complaining from everybody that thinks – College football exploits players. Well, you know what is NIL name, image, likeness? It's television, and, and and you know, same as a commercial. And you just pay them out of that pot. Everybody gets the same uh, on a roster. You know, it, within a conference, you set the the minimum. It's a good amount. It's a, probably going to be a big amount of money. And uh, and then kids choose their schools based on the things they used to. Yeah. Uh, and then you then the ones that work and and, and earn it get nil money and and it's, so to me that that's a that's a fix that I don't think anybody's thinking about
1: right it, it's now. not it's not a bad idea in theory and what I like about it is that you keep it under the Nil umbrella and not full-time employee yes. I, don't, I don't the people that suggest they should become full-time employees have no idea. Mm-mm. What that looks like? Have no yes. idea. The logistics. The, the,
0: <laughs> they're not. They're not business owners. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> they're not business owners.
1: And again, as we've said so often, the, the yellers and the screamers uh, that try to pretend like they're really, um, you know, they're all about the student athlete. Those are the people that care about the health of the sport the least. Very often, so they're not problem solvers. They're just people that bark something off the top of a mountain Mm -hmm. uh, to, to back up, you know, their, their own ideology, but very often it's, there's no practicality to it. There's no logistical uh, sense to it. And there's certainly no, an ounce of thought to, well, what about the health of the sport? And nobody Mm -hmm. has ever said to my knowledge uh, that the health of the sport would be damaged if kids get extra uh, compensation that's not the, that's not the issue. That's a straw man argument, but the, there has to be some levels to it. There has to be some structure to it. And right now, clearly there's not. All right. Um, I just I promise this at the top. I just want to get to this. How many times JC in the last couple of weeks, since the last uh, landmine went off at like UCLA, Southern Cal to the big 10, have you heard somebody come up to you? Could be at a barbecue, could be via text, could be on a message board, uh could be the person on hold that you're talking to, uh, mm-hmm. a, a customer service rep. Hey, man, it's a done deal. Um, I, I talked to some people in North Carolina, Florida State, Miami. Uh, they're going to the SEC. It's probably going to be probably gonna be announced in the next week or so. Um, or any other, any other version of that. Uh, it could have been, no, it, it, it's a done deal. Um, uh, Virginia Tech. Southeastern Conference, uh, Dundeal, North Carolina and Miami, but not Florida State. Uh, market. It's about the markets. Uh, there's so much misinformation out there. Um, this is something if you're hearing about ACC schools going, bolting right now, that you need to know. So this is not theory. These are facts. I'm going to refer first to a guy named David Hale, who is a college football writer for ESPN. Uh, I don't know David personally, but he, he, he crystallizes this as well as anybody I've seen. He says, let's start with Notre Dame fact. Number one, Notre Dame is a contract with the ACC that says it must join the ACC in football. If it joins a league fact, number two, virtually no one expects Notre Dame to join the ACC How can that be? The expectation is Notre Dame will be patient here. Swarbig is in no rush to upend a core tenant of Notre Dame's tradition because a couple of pieces moved in the chessboard. Moreover, the biggest looming question for the Irish remains unanswered, the playoff. More on that in a bit. Notre Dame's contract with the ACC looks essentially like everyone else in the league, an exit fee of three times the annual revenue and a grant of rights, but only for non-football sports. Notre Dame's ACC revenue for 2020 was 10.8, while full ACC schools were 32.3. Uh, let's get past Notre Dame here. Even at even at the high end of that tally, Notre Dame would figure to make that money back with the Big Ten. I didn't want to get too much into Notre Dame. Okay, um, it's tough to get a firm number on what the total cost might be to get out of the ACC. Lots of details not known, but my best estimate based on public available data would be between. 55 and 112 million to depart in 2024. Uh, Notre Dame is not in a hurry to decide its future, but the Irish are a linchpin for future expansion of the Big Ten. The Big Ten and the Pac 12 have an incentive to move fast. No one else does because they're all waiting on Notre Dame. Now let's talk about the ACC's grant of rights. This is what I wanted to focus on more than Notre Dame. I apologize. It runs through 2036. 14 years from now, and it means the ACC owns the broadcast rights for all members until then. The rumor mill has largely ignored how big an obstacle this is. It's enormous. Another aside, adding new teams for opening up the TV contract would not void the existing grant of rights. They are separate documents. If new teams join the ACC, they'd have to sign the same grant of rights as everyone else. So same for departing teams unless more than 50% leave. What it would take for a team to leave, this is the key, an exit fee three times the annual revenue. That right there, right, right there, let's say Clemson wants to go to the SEC. Your exit fee is between 120 and $150 million. Then, assuming the ACC allowed a team to buy out its media rights, you'd be looking at another $300 million plus minimum from 2024 to 2036 so we're now at half a billion dollars for clemson north carolina florida state or miami to get there so here's the thing the acc has no incentive to settle for a buyout instead it could simply say we own your broadcast rights your games will air on our network or not at all and at what value is there for any other league to add an acc team if they can't even earn tv money so in other words if Clemson, Florida State, North Carolina, Miami leave, not only are you spending a half a billion dollars to leave, your games won't be on TV if the ACC has their way, which as of the, of the contract, which apparently is quite rigid. Uh, that's what it says. So several teams have had lawyers looking over this G.O.R. grant of rights. None have challenged it yet. What does that tell you? Or look at Texas and Oklahoma. They're writing out their G.O.R., because the big 12 wasn't going to give them an easy out and they didn't think there was value in taking it to the courts and possibly losing. But PAC 12, big 10 and big 12 deals. end soon ACC has 14 years left. Another thing, there's little incentive for a school to challenge the grant of rights without some certainty, they have a landing spot, but what league is going to make an offer to a school when it doesn't know if that school will have media rights for the next 14 years it is a catch twenty two so j c there's another couple of paragraphs on that, and I know I probably bored half our audience to begin with, but I just uh, want to make just make sure everybody understands over a half a billion dollars to leave the ACC for the SEC right now.
0: that's where that's know. where we stand. right right now uh, and, and, and you know, here's the thing uh that's correct you you'd have to almost work it out to where you know you make that in installments uh if you break it down 15 years you you know you're still coming out on top uh with 120 million dollar deal versus 50 uh because that's 70 million and you pay 15 million a year for however many years and and you get out of it but um or 30 million or whatever um I think the ACC, though, it, with some of the decisions they've made, is putting their future in jeopardy, if not now, eventually. Think about this. They had no logical – and I understand Clemson's point of view about expanding the playoff uh, because life's pretty good right now for them as far as the playoff. But the other league, teams in the league, there's no, there was no planet where they shouldn't have been all over – Expansion, right? And and there was no, there's no planet where you sign that that type of ironclad grant of rights deal uh, for years. You know, based on some gamble that Notre Dame will eventually join your league, which I don't. I think Notre Dame is more likely to join the Southeastern Conference than join the ACC. Uh, and their buyout because it's not with football is is a drop in the bucket. Um. You know, they did that with when they added Florida State and Miami, just assuming those teams were going to play for the championship. And, you know, they ended up with uh, Boston College versus uh, Virginia Tech uh, in Tampa for the title, you know, in front of 15,000 Hokies. I mean, this league has screwed its football membership time and time again. Um, And and I think the schools that invest – in football are done. I think they're done. Uh, if not now, in 2036, because there, there's really no, unless Notre Dame says, all right, we're going to join the ACC, let's go, guys, go Irish, you know, th- there, there's no potential growth there. I mean, it, it, it's just, it's it's over. Um, I, and I do realize that, it, that it's tough. And, and the, the feedback I got uh, was that, it's certain schools. There was an effort, right? There was an inquiry. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say, if Florida State, Clemson. You know, some of these schools had had a had a had a way to get out. Right now, uh, I'm sure they would, um, because Mike. I mean, you know the television business, bud. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lo- that's an eternity to be yep. stuck into the same contract. Uh, and your product's not getting any better. And there's no motivation for ESPN or anybody to up the ante or to give anything else. I That's mean, a key thing. Can I just say one thing on
1: your last point? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm done. For for, pe- for people that, well, no, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. I, that was a, it. I was at the end. You, okay. okay. Well, you brought up a good point that I, I was, I wanted to mention that and I had forgotten because I hear this a lot. Man, oh man, the ACC Uh, They got raked over the coals on that TV deal. Folks, that's the best offer that was on the table. It's not as if there was a better offer behind door number two. This is not Monty Hall. Let's make a deal. They sat there, had out uh, and said, we want a network like the Big Ten and the SEC do. That's a huge advantage financially, among other things, exposure wise, recruiting wise, all your games are on TV, the coverage, everything else. Uh, We, who wants us, who's going to give us a network and, and, and the, and a a financial security and we're not going to have teams jumping ships or we're not, we're going to sign a long-term deal. That was the best offer out there. Period. So, at some point you have to realize it's not so much that a terrible deal was made is that that's where ACC football is. That's what the market bared for ACC football. You know, the PAC 12 was thinking, Oh man, wait till our contract runs up. Okay. Tim Scott screwed us. Not Tim Scott, Larry Scott screwed us over on, um, on the last one, but now we got, we got big tech bidding on us. We got Amazon and we got, you know, Fox and ESPN, and everybody. And I think UCLA and Southern Cal read the TV's and said, they're not going to do that great on this deal either. Let's get the hell out of here. Big 10 is where it's at, man. And that's what happened. So I, I just, I hear that a lot. Um, look, John Swafford was a pretty sharp cat. John Swafford was not Larry Scott that matter. it's not Kevin Warren. Uh, John Swafford's is pretty savvy businessman, but John Swafford also knew sometimes the best deal on the table, even if it's not what, what you hope for, you got to take it. You got to take, cause that's what the market bared for, for the ACC. And that's just where it is. And look, I, I'm not bagging on the ACC. The ACC is a quality league. It's going to be a power five league. I eventually think we're going to be a power four and the ACC will be one of those four, but, um, as far as it, where it is now, JC, I, I know what people are thinking. Well, why don't we fight it in court? You're not going to fight it in court. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can negotiate. Um, good luck with that. I mean, if I'm ESPN, why do I, why don't I want to negotiate the deal? The deal's pretty good for us, you know, mm-hmm. and they still do have Clemson, Florida state and Miami. If Miami ever gets back to Miami, Miami, um, you've got three premier programs and oh, by the way, your tier two, North Carolina, Virginia, Virginia tech, I and mean, that ain't half bad either. Uh, it, it, they're in better shape than some of the other leagues out there. So they don't, they don't have to do anything. And the schools that want to bolt, I just, I think it's cost prohibitive. I don't think they can just do that. So we're going to keep hearing all these rumors uh, you know, Hey, I, don't, don't be surprised if you hear about it next week, Mike, I'm telling you, I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody in that conference office. And they told me done deal Clemson, Miami, North Carolina. I don't think it's going to happen in the, in the near term. I just don't, I could be wrong. Be a great story. If I am wrong, uh, part of me likes all the, 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 you know, chaos and it's kind of fun to follow it and, and change can be a good thing for college sports. But I don't see a whole lot of movement there from ACC well, schools and the SEC is in a position where they can be extremely selective. And, the, and keep in mind, when you add a school, even if it is a brand and you add money to the TV deal, you ha- the calculus is. For the, for the members of the SEC, yes, the money's going to be greater by adding schools XYZ. Guess what? The slice of the pie is going to be cut in another couple of slices. So will I still be getting more money after we have to divide it with two more schools? Because once you get Oklahoma and Texas, you're already going to get an outrageous amount of money, television revenue. Adding two more schools, do you really make enough more revenue to where all at that point eighteen slices of the pie are greater than what the sixteen are already going to be? That's what you, that's what people in these smoke filled rooms or whatever is filling the room. Uh, yeah. That's what they're they're working out on paper.
0: And, and I think another thing to look out for is the expansion of the playoff and and what because right now, as Greg Sankey has said, and I think a lot of this. Uh, is traced back to that. I, I I don't think we'd have now. I'm not saying Southern Cal and UCLA wouldn't have joined the Big Ten because I think that's about something different. But uh, I, I don't know that we would have sort of all this upheaval and talk about super conferences uh, if they just said, "Hey, I mean," which by the way, the 12 team model was the most inclusive uh, thing. It was a game changer for Group of Five. Uh, Game-changer for the Pac-12. I mean, it was the most inclusive playoff model I've seen. And, and, and actually, it's fair. And uh, and even it even didn't give Notre Dame a break, you know? And um, so, I, you know, I think this gets back to that. There was just absolutely no reason other than butthurt for the Alliance or whatever uh, to do what they did. And as Sankey, Greg Sankey said many times – Right now, Mike, there is no college football playoff contract after what 2025 yeah we, uh, we don't have it on the schedule three, three more years four yeah. more years. yeah, if we fast forward in time and, and nothing changed and they do nothing, nothing exists, right? And you have to be careful about it. I mean, you know, um, and I think that was just so petty and so bad. That's that stupid think, and stupid that I think I think <laughs> I think the SEC was like, all right, you know, we're just going to operate under the assumption that you guys don't want to work anything out. You know, we're being fair. Four is great with us. Um, you know, and maybe we'll just go do our own, do our own thing because you know they don't want to be part of the playoff or, or don't want to do what's right there. Then you know, it may make sense to go do your own you know, at some point with two super conferences. But, you know, I, I think – and I think a lot of it's posturing too. And if, if if the ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12 come back to the table, uh, even though the Pac-12 and Big 12 have lost some marquee programs uh, and we go to a 12-team playoff, I, I think then we're pitching stability probably at least until 2036. Uh, and then the ACC will have to go to some sort of imbalanced revenue share uh, or something like that, but it'll. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think getting that next playoff contract done, and agreement done, uh, is paramount because that's uh, that's kind of where it's at, and um, there does need to be more teams. And uh, you know, I, I thought the plan was really good, and, and then you know, butthurt took over, and then one conference in particular that likes to you know sniff little brother's butt. Uh, and follow him around, I mean, our big brother's butt, and follow him around, you know, the Pac-12, I mean, they, they just – I would just – I'd start hating the Big Ten if I were them. I mean, look, look what happened with COVID by following their lead. You know, the Pac-12 suffered worse than anybody. Um, look what happened with uh, the Alliance. You know, oh, no, we're going to – the one the one conference that needed it voted against it because, oh, we're going to follow, you know, our big brother. Big brother just stabbed you in the face. Pulled a Pearl
1: Harbor to use the old
0: WWF wrestling term. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, that that, that's the thing with me. I I just I think there needs to be. I think that playoff key, that playoff is gonna be key. I certainly
1: agree, and and I think I quoted the number last week on the podcast. I think it was like a billion dollars that was going to be split up. Those conferences that didn't sign on to try to make a point against Greg Sankey and the SEC. You may never get that amount offered again, and your conference could be in shambles uh, because you decided to make some type of point, which I don't think was established in the least. Uh, Hopefully, we made a few good points today. Uh, Thanks again to Hudson Mason. Appreciate you guys uh, tuning in. We've been hot and heavy here on the podcast front and another busy off-season SEC Media Days next week, and certainly we'll have plenty to say about that. JC? Be well, my friend.
0: Thanks, Mike. Looking forward to the next episode uh, when uh, we'll talk about how, um, you know, college football is going to go to an English Premier League style. (laughs) Yeah, Relegation. Relegation. I think it's a really good idea. Some people have thought about that. Works for British soccer. Why why couldn't you just do that? I even think like like Andy Staples. Our friend Andy Staples mentioned it, but he was like, this is never going to happen, you know? And and so the people with a level head, I know what they're talking about. It's so,
1: so silly. So I get it. You like soccer, you love soccer. It's not happening in college football, nor should it. Uh, Thanks again, everybody. Episode 168 has
2: been fun. We'll talk to you next week.